previously on 51st. The D.C. statehood cause is getting more attention than ever before. We wanted to know what got us here, starting from the very beginning. Why did the Founding Fathers create D.C. the way they did? One of the reasons we found was a mutiny. This was the ancient horror of the army, the military overthrowing the republic. Out of fear, the Founding Fathers demanded that the new federal government have exclusive control over its home district, separate from all the states and the whims of their governors. But they never figured out one thing, how the residents of that district would vote. Because it doesn't provide a mechanism for DC residents to vote, in effect, strips them of the vote. And then a DC official played fast and loose with the city's budget. Congress looks into it and says, whoa, what have you done? And Washingtonians lost their right to vote for nearly 100 years. I'm Michaela LaFrac. On this episode of 51st, the struggle for self-determination, how DC gained back the right to govern itself. Well, sort of gained it back, mostly. Anyway, let's just dive in. Sorry, just getting situated in my shoe closet. Right. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> Thanks for bearing with me. Um, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. The fight to regain control of our local government was a long, long journey. Here to witness most of it was Kojo Namdi. D.C. area locals probably recognize his voice from the Kojo Namdi Show, the WAMU radio program he's hosted for 20 years. Coming up on the Kojo Namdi Show with almost one million... Kojo's a local celebrity now, but he's originally from Guyana. He moved to Washington, D.C. in 1969. I found a predominantly black city. The black power movement had taken hold in such a way as it did in many parts of the country, but in northern cities in particular. When you got here, everybody was wearing a huge afro, men and women alike, and the... The fashion feature at that point was wearing African gear. All the men were wearing dashikis. All the women were wearing, the black women, of course, were wearing head wraps. And then you began to see a few white people wearing dashikis and head wraps. But that was the cultural context of the time. It was a time when the black power movement promoted the concept of black is beautiful. I have to ask, did you have an afro? I certainly did. I, You know, I have to look at, at pictures of myself from back in those days, especially passport pictures that I have. And I don't, I don't recognize this hairy person that I see. So between the end of our last episode in the 1870s and when Kojo arrives with his afro, D.C. has transformed into a majority black city that's pushing for the right to govern itself. How did we get here? Well, the first big change for Washingtonians is the 23rd Amendment. In the early 60s, D.C. residents gained the right to vote for the President of the United States. The makeup of D.C. and the federal government is different than today. It's less partisan than it is now, and the city's population is more of a 50-50 split between Republicans and Democrats. That helps the amendment pass. Plus, a lot of black residents hit barriers when they try to vote. The majority white advocates of the 23rd Amendment keep telling Congress, This will not be a race thing. This will not be a problem. This will not increase black access to the vote. George Derek Musgrove, co-author of Chocolate City, A History of Race and Democracy in the Nation's Capital. During the 1950s, D.C.'s black population is growing, and racist white politicians aren't interested in granting representation to black voters. 
So the 23rd Amendment doesn't include anything about voting representation in Congress or a local city government. D.C. can vote for president, but nothing else. Still, it's a big step. For many Americans who had lived in D.C. their whole lives, 1964 is the first time they get to vote for president. Can you imagine? For the first time since 1800, the Capitol looks down on voters going to the booths in Washington. They turn out in droves to cast their first presidential ballots in 164 years. President Johnson takes the three District of Columbia electoral votes to add to his victories in 44 of the 50 states. Voting for president, check. But Washingtonians are ready for more. It's the 1960s, the height of the civil rights movement. Black Washingtonians want the right to elect their own government. The city was in every way a colony of the United States. Eleanor Holmes Norton, D.C.'s delegate to Congress and longtime advocate for D.C. home rule. That's what we call the right to elect a local government and a mayor. I interviewed her just outside of her downtown office, and she remembers the deep segregation in D.C. at this time. If you went into the department stores, black people could not try on clothes. The only thing that was different uh, was that uh, African Americans didn't have to sit in the back of the bus. In every other way, this was a segregated city when I grew up. She watches civil rights activists demanding change, and she decides to join them. During the summer of 63, when she's in law school at Yale, she joins the civil rights movement. On a hot summer day, while she's in Mississippi running voter registration trainings, she gets a call. The march on Washington is going to be organized, and Bayard Rustin, who was a mentor of mine, said, if you want to come work for the march, you can actually get paid. Now understand I'm getting paid for none of this. <laughs> Remember, there had never been a successful march on Washington ever in the history of the United States. Well, I remember that day in a very special way because uh, one of my jobs with the march was to help people get buses and trains. August 28, 1963, 250,000 protesters march on Washington, demanding economic and civil rights for black Americans. Norton has been helping to plan the march from an office in New York City. She flies into D.C. early that morning. As far as the eye could see, you could not see anything but people. So I was convinced from watching from the air that the march was going to be a success. The civil rights movement and D.C.'s fight for local control are becoming intertwined, kind of like they are today. There's an effort to actually make home rule part of the uh, March on Washington agenda. Uh, what the organizers decide is that, you know, if somebody wants to make a, if somebody wants to say something about it, they can, but it's not going to be a part of the official plan. We're going to march. We're going to walk together. We're going to stand together. We're going to sing together. We're going to stay together. We're going to moan together. We're going to groan together. And after a while, we'll say, freedom, freedom, freedom now. But it's on the radar of all these civil rights activists, and 10% of the marchers came from D.C. Our work in, in, in the 1963 march on Washington led almost immediately 
to the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and then to the 1965 Voting Rights Act. President Johnson addresses a joint session of Congress to push a voting rights bill aimed at ending discrimination. It would appoint federal voting registrars in some instances and put an end to complicated literacy tests and other hampering tactics. Today is a triumph for freedom, as huge as any victory that's ever been won on any battlefield. Today, we strike away the last major shackle of those fierce and ancient bonds. The March on Washington is a huge success for Norton and the other organizers. It leads to real policy change. The new Voting Rights Act prohibits racial discrimination at the polls. But for black residents of the nation's capital, the Voting Rights Act does almost nothing. Because they don't have the right to vote for anyone except the president. This fact doesn't get ignored by the march's leaders. Leading civil rights activists like Martin Luther King Jr. turn their focus to D.C. Martin Luther King actually comes to town and does a march in Lafayette Square, meets with members of Congress. So there's this great sign where Martin Luther, great picture where Martin Luther King is standing in front of a banner that says, thank you, Mr. President, we want home rule now. The most prominent civil rights activist in the country is fighting for D.C. to have its own locally elected government. President Lyndon B. Johnson is also an ally, but Congress still isn't on board. And that's when Marion Barry steps in. Marion Barry, D.C.'s mayor for life. Except in 1965, he's not a politician yet. He's a community organizer, just about 30 years old. Marion Barry says, look, we got to take this thing to the streets and get a bit more disruptive with it. You know, it's, it's his free D.C. campaign. Free D.C., he says, from bad schools, brutal cops, slumlords, employers who discriminate, and a whole host of other problems. Barry takes this wonky philosophical idea of self-governance and makes it personal. To free D.C., he says, D.C. needs to run itself. Barry tries a couple tactics, some of which smell a little fishy to Congress. Like, at one point, he tries to get business owners to publicly say they support home rule, but he also asks for donations from them. In the mid-1960s, a home rule bill fails. But that's okay. Home rule is becoming a well-known struggle for Washingtonians. Barry and his fellow activists aren't out of ideas yet. And so Barry says, okay, now that we've done the thing with the businesses, let's have house parties or let's have block parties. And so they have block parties in black neighborhoods around the city. And they say, we got to have home rule. And they make this amazing pitch. They say, look, Rats in your neighborhood? D.C. is a nationwide leader in rat infestation in black neighborhoods. If we had home rule, we could get rid of them. Businesses discriminating against you with a two-price system. You know, you walk into white businesses down on 7th Street and you ask how much are the pants and there's no price on them. And you know that they're charging you more than they would have on Wisconsin Avenue. We can get rid of that if we have home rule. It makes this amazing pitch that clearly connects democracy to people's everyday lived experience. And folks buy it. No 
President Johnson is still backing D.C.'s home rule efforts, even though Congress keeps rejecting them. In 1967, Johnson presents a new plan. It's more of a compromise. He establishes a city council and a mayor for D.C., but he gets to appoint everyone on it. It's exactly the same situation from when the government was reorganized during Reconstruction, a hundred years earlier. And the plan passes. Marion Barry and the other organizers say, you know what, let's just hold a vote anyway. Let's show them that we will show up to vote for local officials, if you give us the chance to do it. And we'll elect great people. And so in 67, they organize one of the first sort of popular votes for local offices in the city. So it's taken directly from the Mississippi civil rights struggle. And they have mobile voter stations where they literally put like little voter boxes on the back of station wagons. And they basically just say like, come and cast your vote for whoever you want the president to put on the council. And then we'll send the results to the president. Johnson mostly ignores the results and he selects more moderate leaders to head up D.C. No Marion Barry, for example. But he appoints Walter Washington as mayor, the first African-American mayor of a major American city. Act as if you were elected, Johnson tells his appointees. It's a small step forward on the path to D.C.'s self-governance. But for Marion Barry, Kojo Namdi, and other Washingtonians, it's far from enough. When we come back, home rule and the Marion Barry era. Uh, long story short, that's when I knew he was going to run for mayor in 1978. Stick with us. DC is daily. DC is daily. DC is daily. It's news, culture, and curiosities. From the district, Tacoma Park, Alexandria, Friendship Heights, Hyattsville, Falls Church, Northeast Washington, DC, in your inbox every weekday afternoon. DC is daily. Sign up at dcs.com slash newsletter. dcs.com slash newsletter. Hey, everyone. There's a magical new place where you can show your support for 51st and the team behind What's With Washington. And you can even get your very own pair of What's With Washington Argyle socks. That's our way of saying thanks for your gift at wamu.org slash support what's with. We're back. The new D.C. government is in its infancy, and the early years are incredibly tough. In 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated, and whole blocks of Washington, D.C. burn. President Johnson appealed nationally for calm, asking all citizens to deny violence its victory. Nevertheless, the murder sent the shock wave of violence rolling through the big cities of America, and the worst trouble was in Washington, virtually on the president's doorstep. A stiff breeze fanned the flames of more than half a dozen fires set by looters along 7th Street. And the wind quickly dispersed the tear gas used by police in their only attempts to stop the looting. Then Richard Nixon wins the presidency after campaigning about the need for what he called law and order. He paints D.C. as a crime capital. President Nixon talked about crime in the District of Columbia at his press conference today. And he said the Justice Department was at work on a new plan to deal with it. In the meantime, he said a member of the White House staff had been a victim of a purse snatcher. 
And so all those lights President Johnson turned off, he is turning back on. Crime rates in the district are increasing at what seems to be a runaway pace. Robberies and holdups doubled last year. Banks are robbed almost every day. Around this time, Kojo Namdi moves to D.C. He finds a city full of motivated black activists and business people, and he immediately feels at home. I was living in the uh, Adams Morgan neighborhood. It was predominantly black, and there were, there were a bunch of kind of black militant and community-based organizations. The Black Panther Party had its headquarters here on 7th Street Northwest. The general kind of environment was one of, of I, I guess, black community togetherness. We all felt that, interestingly enough in those days, that we were under siege by the police department and that uh, we needed to, to have this, this brotherhood and sisterhood, this kind of togetherness. That was the kind of general environment at the time. It's a world capital, a bustling place. It is also a troubled place, suffering from every urban problem. Poverty, bad housing, pollution, crime, and narcotics. Under the Constitution, residents of Washington are not allowed to solve their own problems or even to elect their own city officials to solve the problems. Congress runs Washington. The major power is... D.C.'s local leaders are still fighting hard to change that equation. There's even a D.C. statehood political party that pops up. But Namdi says he sees most Washingtonians uniting around home rule. They want Congress to pass a bill giving the city the right to elect its own officials so they can fix their own problems. To me, this is not some, you know, just abstract ideological issue. This is something real that we live every single day. The fact that when we pass laws, the Congress can simply intervene and they can't do that in any other states in the country. Most of the other activists were focused at that point on home rule because uh, they realized that we had to take things one step at a time and that the likelihood of getting home rule was significantly greater than the likelihood of getting stated. The emerging leader of this home rule movement is a man named Walter Fauntroy. He's a pastor and civil rights leader, and he'd worked with Martin Luther King Jr. on the March on Washington. Power in this country, increasingly, is going to be a function of whether or not you're able to represent a, a growing number of people. If, if for example... Walter Fauntroy was from Washington, D.C., and was therefore keenly aware of the disenfranchisement of Washington, D.C. And so right after his work with Dr. King and organizing the March on Washington, he essentially came back home and started organizing for greater local autonomy for the district. Fauntroy takes a hard look at the congressional committee in charge of Washington, D.C., and he hones in on the chairman, a Southern Democrat from South Carolina named John McMillan. With the outlook of a small-town white Southerner, McMillan oversees the affairs of the big, mostly black city of Washington. Many black residents of Washington don't like the way he runs it. In a McMillan is against school integration, he's against the Civil Rights Act, and he's against D.C. self-government. He's blatantly racist. He'd give watermelons to the D.C. mayor, Walter Washington, when they would meet on Capitol Hill. McMillan's also been around forever. He's been in Congress since the beginning of World War II. 
Fonroy decides it's time for this guy to get voted out of office. So he starts studying Macmillan's district. At this point, I then began to implement what I had called the arithmetic of black political power. Fauntroy sends busloads of D.C. residents down to McMillan's district in South Carolina. They register black voters and tell them all about what's going on in D.C. Here's Fauntroy again. Fortunately, we were in position to, thanks to our Voting Rights Act of 1965, do something about Mr. McMillan. In the four years between 1965 and 1969, we had registered two million black people in the South. They had become... 25% of the electorate of some 30 southern districts, not the least of which was Mr. McMillan's district. And uh, we were able, therefore, to organize our friends in those districts to let the weight of their, their marching ballots make a difference. In 1970, Fauntroy and his team head down to South Carolina to campaign for McMillan's opponent. In 100-degree heat, the campaign workers went door to door, urging black voters to deny McMillan his 17th term in Congress and his power over Washington. Right here at the Post, we ask you, would you please vote for Scott Stevens? Here is a sample ballot of how you can vote. You just, you know, scratch out Congressman McMillan's name. Mistress McMillan has voted against... McMillan wins, but his opponent attracts a strong turnout. Fonroy can see that the campaign is working. Then, in 1970, Fauntroy becomes the city's first-ever delegate to Congress. He doesn't have a vote. The job's the same as it is today. But he's there, on Capitol Hill, same place as John McMillan. Fauntroy sticks to his strategy, the arithmetic of black power. He convinces thousands of people to write letters to their representatives, asking them to support home rule for Washington, D.C. And the representatives start feeling the pressure. In order to get that, you don't simply make speeches about how terrible it is that we can't, that taxation without representation is tyranny. Everybody knows that. In order to change this system, you have to have the resources to develop the vote power in a sufficient number of congressional districts to get a bill passed that would amend the Constitution of the United States to give us that. And you know what? It works. In 1972, South Carolinians vote John McMillan out of Congress. Two veteran congressmen, Wayne Aspinall of Colorado and John McMillan of South Carolina, were defeated yesterday in primary elections. Both are House Committee chairmen, both in their 70s. There were millions of new black voters who had been locked out of the process. This is Michael Fontroy, historian and nephew of Walter Fontroy. He says McMillan's ouster makes a lot of other white congressmen start rethinking their stance on D.C. There were going to be people losing office if they weren't supporting certain public policies that they had not previously had to worry about. These white congressmen realize if they speak out against home rule, they open themselves up for criticism. People like Walter Fontroy saying, hey, you're anti-democracy. People came to understand that there was no real legitimate democratic argument against greater home rule for the district. And in 1973, the D.C. Home Rule Act finally passes Congress. President Nixon signs it into law. It's a new day for D.C.'s 750,000 residents. They get a mayor and a city council that they elect. They can also create a budget, pass laws, levy taxes, things people in states take for granted. 
And at this time, black culture in D.C. is thriving. The city's elected government looks like the city. Local musicians invent go-go, and the band Parliament Funkadelic writes an ode to D.C. called Chocolate City. A chocolate city is no dream. It's my piece of the rock. And I dig you, C.C. God bless Chocolate City and its vanilla suburbs. Can y'all get to that? But home rule doesn't magically fix everything. Just like today, Congress gets to veto any law the local government passes. And it has final say over the district's budget. It's those local government training wheels. The Home Rule Act of 1973 was a compromise. In 1973, the thought of a well-run black city with control over governmental contracting and that kind of thing was uh, very scary. And I think everybody understood at that time that it wasn't the best possible bill, but it was the best possible bill that could pass. Congress can get involved in local issues, and it does get involved, sometimes in really small stuff. One time they even tamper with the closing time of the pool at a local public high school, Wilson High. This is a, this is a sore point for me because I'm a Wilson grad. Somehow Congress thought it was, in its, it was an appropriate use of its time and efforts. Residents couldn't use the pool because there was some concern that, you know, people would be making noise and disrupt uh, the, the community around the pool. Around this time, Kojo Namdi gets his first job in broadcasting, news editor at Howard University's radio station, WHUR. That's really when my own interest in what was going on in the District of Columbia peaked because I had to manage coverage of it on a daily basis. I have to tell this story before it slips away from me. Uh, our reporter who covered the district was a guy named Maurice Williams. He was a 24-year-old graduate of Howard University, and his beat was the district building. In March 1977, Namdi heads out for lunch with a friend, a Washington Post reporter. They run into Maurice Williams, who asks if he can tag along. We said, no, because we, we used to call him the kid. We said, you're a kid, you're too young, you can't hang out with the older guys. When Namdi and his friend finish eating, they notice a lot of commotion around the district government building. Namdi rushes back to work at the radio station. The phone was ringing. It was an editor from the Washington Afro-American newspaper with whom I often joked. And when I started joking with him, he said, no, Kojo, this is not a joke. There's a shooting in the building, and Maurice Williams is lying in the hallway, and I think he's dead. There are holes in his sweater, and he is not moving. It turns out that a group called the Hanafi Muslims had taken control of the fifth floor of the district building. And they were on one end of the fifth floor, and they were exchanging gunfire with the security on the other end of the fifth floor when an elevator of people who did not know what was going on came up to the fifth floor and out of that elevator walked, among other people, my reporter Maurice Williams and then at-large council member Marion Barry. They were both caught in the crossfire. Maurice was killed instantly. Marion Barry was wounded and had to be hospitalized. And while Marion Barry was hospitalized, when we were covering what was going on and I saw the people who were showing up to offer solace to him, uh, long story short, that's when I knew he was going to run for mayor in 1978. 
because he was getting so much, so much support, that was such a pivotal moment for the city? Yes. Sure enough, Marion Barry wins the 1978 election for D.C. mayor. When he takes office, he takes a look under the hood of the district's government. They found just what you might expect, a federal bureaucracy. Tom Sherwood, longtime local political analyst and the co-author of Dream City, Race, Power, and the Decline of Washington, D.C. Sherwood says that even though home rule is passed, the only real visible change in who works for the D.C. government are the figureheads. Their staff still look the same as they did when the district was run by the federal government. So many people lived, white people lived in the suburbs, came into the city, ran it, and then went home to the suburbs. So one of the first things Marion Barry did as mayor was to open the government up to the African-American business people and community leaders who lived here but were shut out of their own government. Marion Barry was the first person to really open the doors to the black population of Washington and say, this is your government, come help me run it. Barry hires new staff and he runs the city's first ever audit. The results in three words, debt, deficit, liability. The district government is hundreds of millions of dollars in debt. Barry starts making moves, and things do improve. He puts money towards cleaning up libraries and playgrounds and alleyways. He starts a summer jobs training program that still exists today. Plus, D.C. experiences this huge real estate boom in the early 80s that brings a lot of money into the city. Shiny new buildings start getting erected downtown. And Barry gives thousands of black people new jobs in the city government. People love Marion Barry. But D.C. isn't stable. The city bureaucracy is growing. So is crime. The crack cocaine epidemic hits the city hard. Hits Barry hard, too. Sherwood says that when he asked district officials about Marion Barry's drug use, they would say, Whether Barry's using drugs or not, we don't know. But when he comes to a meeting, he knows what he's talking about. In 1990, Barry gets arrested by the FBI for doing crack cocaine in a D.C. hotel room. Despite all the good he's done, that event comes to define Marion Barry in a lot of people's eyes, especially white people. After a decade as D.C.'s mayor, Barry gets voted out of office. His successor promises to reform the local government. But D.C. is still battling high crime and drug rates. And over the next five years, the city sinks even deeper into the red. Here's George Derek Musgrove, author of Chocolate City. The bills come due, and effectively, we go bankrupt. The solution is one you've heard before. Congress comes in and takes over control of D.C. This time, they set up a control board, a handful of people appointed by Congress who control the city's finances completely. Marion Barry stages this incredible comeback and gets re-elected mayor in 1994. His reputation for bad management kind of seals the deal on the control board. Musgrove says that Barry accepts it. He's not sure how to solve the city's financial problems without it. One, we need it because we're broke. Two, we need it because we are really poorly managed. And then three, there's a huge chunk of Republicans. and It almost becomes a sort of standard party policy. They get to the point where they start to call for the revocation of home rule. When the federal government steps in, it does bring a lot of money with it to help D.C. get back on track. But it also symbolizes this big step backwards on the district's long path to governing itself. 
That's why the takeover is a total gut punch to a lot of residents, people like Anise Jenkins. It was a shock to me when the control board took over and took over the Washington, D.C. and our local government. That was a total shock to me. Jenkins grew up in D.C., went to Howard University. But never, ever in my life knew that D.C. had this horrible situation. I never knew. I don't think they taught us this in school. I had no idea that Washington, D.C. residents were so disenfranchised. And I didn't pay much attention to it until the control board just basically took all the powers of the local D.C. government, except for parks, recreation, and libraries. And when that happened, that was like a slap, like a wake-up call. She decides, you know what? This is my calling. I have to help my city. And what my city needs is to become a state. So she starts to protest. Should I do this? I've never done this. And I did it. I got on the defense of the White House and refused to get off and got arrested with the group. The story of Anise Jenkins and D.C.'s push for statehood. That's on our next episode. Fifty First is produced by me, Michaela LaFrac, and senior producer Ponzi Rutch. Additional production comes from the WAMU podcast team, Ruth Tam, Patrick Ford, and Jonklin Hill. Mike Kidd mixed this episode. Our chief content officer, Monica Ashby, oversees all the content we make at WAMU. If you're as excited to talk about D.C. statehood as we are, write us a review or tell a friend. We'll be back next week with another episode of Fifty First. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.